0: Okay, we're back uh, at the Epistle of James. Epistle means letter. This is uh, James the half-brother of Jesus we're talking about here. Let's just review last week real quick so we can kind of get caught up to. Remember when you're reading a letter there's a flow to it. Uh, Some letters require more paying attention to the actual whole letter than other letters. James' letter as more of a short, pithy comment, but there's still a flow to it. Uh, in Paul's letter, he makes his long, drawn-out arguments, so you really have to pay attention. Uh, if, you, if you isolate uh, a verse or a chapter, or even, uh, even a couple chapters, in, Paul, in Paul's books, like Romans, you come up with a lot of false doctrine. People oftentimes will, will uh, isolate, like Romans 9, and come up with this idea that God hates certain people and loves other certain people in some kind of unconditional way, and God has chosen certain people for salvation and certain people not for salvation, just by reading one chapter. If they read the whole of the book, they can understand it a little better. James is a little bit different. He doesn't have long, drawn-out arguments, but he does have a flow of thinking. When you're writing a letter to somebody, you're not just doing one, one sentence as this, one, I mean, you're writing a paragraph at a time, right? And usually even the paragraphs come together at some point in time, as far as the flow of thinking. So we need to understand, that's why we're going through the whole book, um, so we talked about James being a bondservant and what a bondservant means, what it means to be a, a, whoever you submit yourself to, whether sin leading to death or righteousness leading to eternal life. look at Romans 6 for that. Uh, letting endurance or perseverance have its perfect work because you need to be endure perfectly to endure to end and be saved in the end. We talked about that. Um, that God gives wisdom to all to ask in what? In faith. So if you want wisdom from God, and you come to him and ask, well, I'll just ask God for wisdom, but you kind of like doubting whether he's going to give it to you or not. Guess what? You're not going to get it. You have to ask in faith. You can't be a double-minded man. We talked about uh, the rich brother and the lowly brother, and how not having worldly possessions strengthens your faith. You have to trust in God more for things. Whereas the rich brother will end up sometimes trusting in his riches. But when his riches are taken away, the Bible says in here that he should rejoice in his humiliation because he might be humiliated in the world's eyes. But when his riches are taken away, he should rejoice because he will strengthen his faith in God. Okay, so being materially rich is not a sinful thing. And being materially poor is not a godly thing. Okay, but if you are materially poor, you end up, if you let it do its work in your life, trusting in God for more things. And talk about the farmer having to trust in God for sun, for the the, the ground to be working properly, the seed to be working properly, for the rain. If he can't water his own crops, so he's in complete trust of God for his daily sustenance. All right. And today we're we're talk, We're going to go through from verse twelve all the way to the end of uh, chapter one, verse twenty-seven. I'm going to read it first, and then we'll come back through it. Okay?
1: What? The, what chapter James,
0: James. James chapter one. Chapter one. one we're we'll starting in verse twelve, and we'll go all the way through the end of the chapter let's read it blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved he'll receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him let no one say when he is tempted I am tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he himself tempt anyone but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed then when desire has conceived it gives birth to sin and sin when it is full grown brings forth death do not be deceived my beloved brethren every good and perfect gift is from, uh, from above It comes down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruit of his creatures so then my beloved brethren let every man be swift to hear slow to speak slow to wrath For the wrath of man has not produced the righteousness of God. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive the meekness which the implanted word which is able to save your soul. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, and goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, <clears throat> this one will be blessed in what he does. Then, when among you thinks he is religious, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives to his own heart, this one's religious it, religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this: to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Lots of good stuff in this passage. I really, I really enjoyed studying this this whole week. Let's start in verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. The word for temptation there is the same word used up in verse 2, which is translated in, as trials in the New King James Version. Once again, it can mean temptation or trials. But the context defines what it is. Okay? And if you look down in, in verse uh, 13, uh, the same word here used here let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Now, We have two definitions we can use here. We can use trial uh, slash testing for the translation of this Greek word, or we can use temptation in the sense that you're tempted to do evil things. Temptation to sin, okay? So it says that, now we can get the definition from the context here. Verse 13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. All right, so let's look at the, let's try in, in verse 12, where it says the word temptation there. Same word used in verse 13. Let's, let's use the first definition here, trial and testing. Now it says God does not tempt anyone. The same word there. Can we use trial or testing for that word? Does God test people? Does God try people? He sure does. So obviously, that temptation, that, that definition for the word in this context is out the window. It must mean tempted to do evil, because God does not tempt anyone to do evil. Okay? But I want, I want, you, to, I want you to use some, uh, some logic here, okay? Let's erase this for a second. And we're going to look at Calvinism once again, something we've studied quite a bit in this home fellowship. Calvinism says that God uh, ultimately ordains... Or decrees all things I've even heard a Calvinist say the devil is God's devil that's what I've heard him say now this verse right here says this let's read it again verse 13 let no one say when he is tempted remember tempted to do evil here I am tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He himself tempt anyone now, if God ordains or decrees, and these are just fancy words the Calvinists will use to say God causes all things God therefore must be the decreer, the ordainer, the causer of what temptation. this verse itself, in my mind, destroys this whole thing of God as the ordainer, the causer, the decreer of all things. God does not tempt anyone. God is the author of temptation, not the one behind the person causing temptation. God may allow temptation, but that's completely different. And a consistent Calvinist cannot use the word allow, because nothing is allowed in God's universe, a Calvinistic God's universe. God is the cause, the primary cause of all things. So this verse alone, in my mind, destroys this unconditional election, this Calvinistic view of God, which I despise, quite honestly, because it maligns the character of God, and makes God the tempter of evil, and makes God the cause of evil, the ordainer, the decreer, whatever word they want to use, of evil. It's not the God of the Bible. Not the God of the Bible. So, let's get back to what it's actually saying here to us, though. For when he is who blessed the man who endures temptation. Now, we looked at last week that you'll not only endure trials and tribulation and persecution if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, but you'll endure temptation. Now, as Christians, we can live holy. We never ever have to give in to t- temptation. But can we stop temptation from coming? No. We can never stop temptation from coming. Now, there can come a point in time where certain temptations that may be stronger in our life now, maybe pulling at us harder, maybe harder for us to resist now. Later on it'll be easier to resist. I use the example when I first became a Christian. I was a drunkard. When I first became a Christian, I was a, I was a drunkard before I became a Christian. And guess what? I didn't go to the I didn't go hang out with my friends who were drinking beer. I didn't go around beer at all. Because if I did, I would have ended up being a drunkard once again. Uh, there's other things that I had a problem with when I first became a Christian. But as I resisted temptation, I kept away from temptation. The Bible says, guard your heart above all else, for there's a the wellspring of life. Guard your heart. Set up boundaries so you don't fall into these sins. So as I, as I did that, guess what? I am not tempted, not even one little tiny bit, by beer or drunkenness, where I was in the beginning. But as you overcome temptation, uh, it becomes easier. But you can't get rid of temptation altogether even Jesus was tempted for 40 days in the desert so when you have endured temptation when then he has been approved the word approved there means tested tried and also means precious precious remember last week we used this idea of silver and gold being tested and tried put in the fire if silver and gold has impurities within it it gets put in the fire the fire separates the pure gold from the dross the impurities And you can scoop that dross off, and now you have pure gold. But it must go through the fire. And when someone has been tempted, when they have been approved, they've been tried, tested, and they've been made precious, he, that person, will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to who? To those who love him. There's conditions there. Salvation isn't unconditional to everyone who says a sinner's prayer, to everyone who goes to church. It's conditional upon those who love him. And John 14, Jesus said, If you love me, you will obey me. That's how you show your love for God. That's how you show your love for your parents, by obeying them. Not just by giving them lip lip, uh, service. Jesus said in John 15, These people come near to me and praise me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. There's a difference there. But those who love him will receive the crown of life when they've been approved, tested, tried. God wants a holy kingdom. He will not have a sinful kingdom. He'll have a holy kingdom. So verse 13, once again, let no one say, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Now the word desires here um, is translated, in some translation, to lust or evil desire. Bad translation in my mind. Because what do we think about when we think about lust? I think about Matthew five twenty-eight. Lust is the same as adultery in the heart. Lust is a sin. But let me give you uh, two examples of where this word is used in other places where it shows you this word, this Greek word, it doesn't always mean a sinful lust. It can mean desire, as I have here in New King James. Luke twenty-two, 15. Let's go to there real quick. Luke 22, verse 15. This is Jesus sitting with his disciples at the Last Supper, as it's often called, the Last Supper, the he had with them, the Passover feast. He says in verse 15, he says, Then he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now let's translate it with this idea that this Greek word always means a sinful lust. With fervent lust, sinful lust, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Doesn't fit at all. So it doesn't always mean sinful. Okay? It can just mean a strong desire. It's a strong desire. Let's look at one other verse that, that uses this word. So second Thess- 1 first Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter uh, two and verse seventeen. It's right after Colossians. This is Paul speaking here. uh, 2.17 But we brethren having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see you, see your face with great desire. That's Paul saying he wants to see their face with great lust, uh, uh, sinful lust. No, he has a great desire in his heart to see them. Okay, so let's go back to the passage here and so this word desire here translates lust or evil desire in certain translations just means a strong desire so we have a strong desire there's, there's lots of things we can have strong desires for we can have a desire uh... i don't know for let's say food water what else can we have a desire for relationship right with someone else Children won't understand that totally right now, but when you get older, you'll understand that. Let's just use these things. Now, you can have a deep, deep, deep desire for food, but can that desire be fulfilled in a sinful way? Yeah, you can become a glutton. Okay, you can affect your health in a negative way and die earlier than God would have wanted you to because you're eating too much or eating the wrong foods. Uh, you can have a well, I should just put drink here, but I put water, but let's say you have a desire for drink. Can you have a desire for a, a wrong kind of drink? So you can fulfill the desire sinfully or the right way to fulfill it? A relationship uh, with the opposite sex, what I'm talking about here. Now, can that be fulfilled sinfully? Can it be fulfilled the right way? That's right. So desire in itself, in this verse, is not sinful in and of itself. And we see, as it clarifies itself, uh, each one is tempted. Is temptation sin? No. Was no. Jesus is tempted? In yes. all point, just as we are, yet was without sin, the Bible says. So temptation is not sin. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. Let me give you an example here. I like to fish a little bit. Let's just say we got a pond here. Here's the ground over here. And you got a man over here fishing. He's sitting on a stool, fishing, you know. I know it's not a very good thing here. Got a hook down here, and it's got a little squiggly worm on it. you got Mr. Fish over here, and he's doing okay. He's a hungry fish, though. This fish has a desire for food. This worm looks good to him. So he's, he sees it with his eyes. He says, Mmm, that looks good he's drawn away he goes up here he's drawn away he's enticed by this worm now if it's a worm on the bottom of the floor here or the bottom of the water hey that's a good that's a good being drawn away it's good to be enticed by that you're hungry you gotta eat you're a fish if you don't eat you're gonna die but he's drawn away and enticed and goes up here and he gets it guess what's gonna happen he's hooked what's gonna happen now he's food He's food for Mr. Fisherman here. Mmm. Now, was that a good thing to be drawn away to? Was, was the worm itself wrong? The What the worm was on, that's what's wrong for Mr. Fish. He got hooked, lassoed in, and now he's what? Dead. Let's go back to the context here. Let's go back to the verses here, and let's read it again with this analogy in mind. But well, no one says when he is well, verse 14, but each one is intent is tempted when he is drawn away, drawn away by his own desires and enticed. He's enticed. The drawn away enticed are not sinful. We're not sinful yet. We're just tempted. So drawn away and enticed mean. You're tempted. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So this hook represents sin here. This worm represents desire. He's drawn away, and enticed, and guess what? It's conceived. He gives in to the desire. He gives in to temptation. He gives in to the enticing and snags onto the hook, and now he's a dead fish. So it happens to every person who is drawn away? They're enticed. They're tempted by desires they have. These natural desires, food, drink, relationship, that's only some examples there, that can be fulfilled lawfully or unlawfully, sinfully or, or morally good and they're enticed and they give into it and guess what happens it gives birth to sin it gives birth to death that's what happens so we have an example here of a husband and wife, here's another example you can give here, a husband and wife they they desire a child so they're drawn away, which is a good desire here, they're enticed to have a child and guess what, when this conception comes together, the husband and wife say, well, we both want a child, let's have a child they give into it free will involved here, they're both in doing it here they give into to it, and guess what? A child is conceived. It's conceived because they both desire to have a child, and they go forth and try to have a child, and it's conceived. And when it's full birth, it, come, it comes to full birth. So we have here this thing called death, brings forth death. So sin gives birth to sin. Once you give in, it gives birth to sin, and then it gives, brings forth death. Okay? So now you have this situation of he's on the hook now, that's sin. He has to be reeled in. Okay. Now the word death here. There's many different kinds of death in the Bible, and we're going to determine what kind of death this one's talking about real quick. So we got death here. The first one is physical death. Okay. Does someone need to sin in order to die physically? No you're automatically going to die physically. It's a fact of life. People often say there's two things you're guaranteed in life, death and taxes. I've seen people escape taxes before, but they've never escaped death. You're going to die physically. So I don't think it's talking about that. Then another one you have, is you have spiritual death, which is basically separation from God. Then you have reprobation, that kind of death we talked about that a little bit in this uh home fellowship and then you have the second death or the lake of fire which is you when you're cast into hell okay spiritual death's talking about when you sin you're separated from god okay you have a question john
1: no i was just i was just going to bring i was going to try all this to the end but just going now. now if if it meant physical death when Seth
0: lied to me this morning, he would have died. Right. So, yeah. Just want to bring that out. Right. So that, that, that's another good point, the reason why it cannot possibly be a physical death. Every time you sin physically, you would have died. And when God said to Adam in the garden, the day you he he should surely die, did Adam die physically that day? He lived for another 900 years, probably. We don't know how old he was when that happened. That's why I said probably. But um, he did die spiritually. He was separated from God that day. So that's spiritual death. Okay, but let's let's find out if it's really talking about spiritual death. Let's let's go back to the verse here, and I'm going to explain to you what one of these words means. It says, uh, it gives birth to sin in verse 15, and sin, when it is full-grown, focus on full-grown here, brings forth death. Full-grown means final or accomplished. Okay, final or accomplished, full-grown. Now, do you need full-grown or accomplished sin in order to bring forth spiritual death? No, you just need one sin. Just need one sin to bring forth spiritual death, separation from God the Father. Did Adam have full-grown sin uh, when it, it came to maturity? No, he had just one sin. All he needed to bring forth spiritual death. And I really think so. I, I'm going to cross that here. Maybe you'll have questions about that in a little bit. See kind of question marks on your faces here, but I think it's talking about one of these other ones. Okay, when it is full-grown, brings forth death. And another reason I think it's talking about one of these two. It's because, look at what we're talking about in verse 12. Look at the context here. There's a a comparison here. For blessed is a man who endures temptation when he has been approved, for he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. When he has been approved. When it has come to completion. When he's been tested and tried. So we're talking about the end here, I believe. That's why it says when he has been approved. And it's talking about a future tense here. So... When sin is full-grown, or it comes to completion, uh, I think one or two things happen. Either you're still alive, and there's no chance for you to be saved now. It just brings forth death. You're just dead. There's no chance for you to be saved now. That's reprobation. You're still alive, but there's no chance for you to be saved. You're you're too far gone. You're too far gone. Sin has has had its full-grown effects on you, and you're past the point of no return. That's why you should never play with sin. Or secondly, it's talking about when you die in sin, and that's the second death when you're cast into the lake of fire. So you're drawn away, you're enticed, you give into to it, you, you're, you're hooked, you're hooked on it. You can still get off the hook, right? Can the fish still get off the hook? Now, when a fish gets off the hook, is going to have some kind of bad repercussions from being on the hook? Yeah, he might be harmed every time you sin, you're going to hurt yourself. You might even hurt other people, depending on what your sin is. But he can still get off the hook. He can still live. And when you sin, you could still live by repenting, confessing, forsaking once again, and living for Jesus. The repentance must happen. What if the person doesn't try, what if this fish doesn't try to get off the hook? What's going to happen to him? He's going to die. Going to die. So what to someone who's in sin, they give up. So the rice man falls down, he gets back up. Okay? So I believe he's talking about reprobation. This, this death is reprobation here, or second death, one or the other. But it's got this, this finalization thing here that's going on here. Finalization. There's no turning back. And once the fish is out of water, guess what? If this fisherman's hungry, he is going to eat that fish. He's not putting it back. And the devil, the author of sin, he's hungry for human beings. He knows he's going to hell. He wants to drag as many people to hell with him as he possibly can. The author and father of sin. All right, so that's what I think this is talking about here. And then it says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. What, What should we be deceived about? Two things in this passage. First of all, that God tempts people, don't be deceived. Don't so ever give into this theology called Calvin that says that God is the author, the causer, the decreer, the ordainer of temptation, of all things, including temptation. Don't be deceived about that. And secondly, do not be, and, and that's what, the other thing, is who do we blame our sin on? Who's it, who are we to blame for our sin? What's that? No, you don't. Well, we, we're to blame ourselves. I mean. Right, I, I, I mean, people do blame, yeah.
1: We
0: but the only person to blame for our sin is Us. Mm-hmm. Us. Okay? And uh, that's what he's saying here, you, don't be deceived, you can't blame God for tempting you. You can't blame God for allowing, you to, for you sinning. It's your fault. And when it comes down to it, if we were to stand before a Calvinistic God, on we can say, God, it's your fault. You're the one that tempted me. You're the one that caused me to sin. You're the primary cause of all things. And we would have an excuse. So don't be deceived about that. And don't be deceived that sin won't bring forth death. Don't be deceived. That's the greatest deception. Those are the two greatest deceptions there is, if you ask me, blaming God for sin and not believing sin brings forth. That's what happened in the garden. What did, what did Adam say? He said, that woman you gave me. And he said, the serpent that you made. Let's blame God. Did God say, well, you're right. It's my fault. Did he say that? No, he punished him. But if, if God really did cause that to happen, it would be God's fault, wouldn't it? Okay. Verse 17. Here's the contrast here. Every good gift and every perfect gift, not temptation, not sin, is from above. And it comes from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. And it gives a little play on words here. The Father of lights. What were the great lights that God created in the beginning in Genesis? The moon, the sun, the stars. That's what God created. Now the stars, they can change, right? The stars blow up. Have you, have you heard of shooting stars? it's not really a star it's really more of a comment but uh, the moon does it move around the sun does it change yeah the people think the sun's fading out it's burning out so those things change he's the father those things change but guess what it says he does not change hebrews 13 says jesus christ is the same yesterday today and forever he does not change of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures well, this is not talking about regeneration or calvinistic regeneration where god forces regeneration on you it's simply talking about the way you're brought forth into the kingdom of god is through the word of god how can they believe in the they not heard how can they hear without a preacher you must hear the word of god to be saved so then my beloved brethren let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness, does not produce the righteousness of God. Okay, let's, let's look at something for a second here. I'm going to ask you some real simple questions here to help you understand what he's saying here. Slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry, or slow to produce wrath. How many ears do each one of you have? Two. How many mouths do each one of you have? One. Let me give you a little cliche here to help you understand this verse. You should listen twice as much as you speak. You should listen twice as much as you speak. Let me give you another analogy here. You can either speak, uh, think twice, and speak once, or you can speak twice, or you can think once, think once, and speak twice. Let Let me explain it to you. You can either think twice and speak once, or think once and speak twice. Think twice means you're really thinking it over what you're going to say before you say it. Before you say it, you're thinking it over twice and then you speak once because guess what? You didn't speak wrongly. You spoke rightly because you thought it through before you said it. We should all think through what we're going to say before we let it blur out of our mouth. Or you can think once which means you didn't really think it through. You just let it come out. And then you're not speaking twice which means, guess what, you probably have to end up apologizing later on. So you, that's the two options you have, you can think twice, speak once, or think once, speak twice. Now you have two ears, one mouth, you listen twice as much as you speak, okay? That's the way it should work with us because we want to be godly <laughs> in what we say, and we'll get to the tongue here in a second, godly in the way we speak to people a mouth full of grace seasoned with salt the bible says dashed away our mouth should be working okay so but but anger it's, is anger itself wrong yeah that's what ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 27 says be angry and do not sin so can you be angry and not sin yeah, that's what it says yeah, i mean was jesus angry in the temple courts and he's flipping over the tables Did Jesus sin? No. You can be angry and sin not. But that's why it says be slow to be angry. Now, if you're quick to be angry, that's what Galatians calls an outburst of wrath. It's an outburst. It just just came out. It It was just a reaction. It wasn't an action. It was a reaction. An action is when you think twice and speak once. A reaction is when you think once and speak twice. It's what comes out of you. Just comes out of you. Okay? So it, but you can be angry, but if you're slow to angry, it means you thought it through and you're angry for the right reasons. Let me give you an example. I can be angry at my children for the right reasons or for the wrong reasons. Maybe they do something and I flip and I just get real angry at them. That's probably an outburst of wrath. That's the wrong kind of anger. But I can also, that's sin. I can also Think it through and say, listen, this is not working, this is not working. I'm going to raise my voice, but to tell them how serious I am. And you'll see how quickly they straighten up when I read, Malachi, you see that? He straightened up real quick. Now, that wasn't an outburst of wrath. I thought it through first, and I had a plan for it. He straightened up, though. Now that yelling, that raising my voice wasn't a sin. It go to the open air. You can respond, like say someone insults you in the open air. You can respond with an outburst of wrath and insult them back, or you can respond with a rebuke, which is really hard, a really hard rebuke, a really hard word, and it's not sin, but you're raising your voice. So that's, that's why, that's the difference between, and he describes the difference between godly anger and ungodly anger, the slow to anger, is the godly anger, you've thought it through before you respond, and that's why it's not sinful. Let's go on to verse 21. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Well, verse 18, Calvinists will say that verse 18 is talking about God regenerating you against your will and making you able to respond. Let's see what verse 21 says again. The implanted word which is able to save your soul, and it requires a receiving and a laying aside of all filthiness and overflow. So it's it's a person doing something. They're laying aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receiving on their part. They have to do it. The implant there which is able, not which definitely does save or forces you to be saved, it's able to save you if you'll receive it, if you'll receive it. Verse 22. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Matthew 7 and verse 24. <clears throat> James sounds so much like his half-brother, his Lord and Savior, the one who he's a bond slave to. He sounds just like him so much sometimes. I want to read to you from verse 24. Actually, I'll read verse 21 first, and then I'll skip to verse 24. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Down to verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, they've heard it, and does them. I have will liken him to a wise man who has built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them. It will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now people will have you believe. This is talking about unbelievers and believers here. They're talking about people who have heard the word. Some unbelievers haven't heard the word. But for those who've heard the word, those who obey it are like those who built it on the rock. Those who don't obey it, whether they're professing Christians or not, where they claim to be Christian athletes, you do not obey it. You're like a man who's built his house on the sand. What's going to happen when a hurricane comes to a house that's built on the sand, no foundation? It's going to destroy it. But a house, say you come upon a cement house with walls that are ten feet thick, built upon a cement foundation. Is a tornado going to wipe that thing out? It's built upon a rock. It's full of the rock. And who's the rock? Jesus. Your house is built upon him and his commandments and doing them. Not just hearing them, because you're all hearing it. You hear it every week and you hear it from your parents all week. You're hearing it, but you must do it. Otherwise, you're like a foolish man who's built his house on the sand. Let's go back to verse 23 of, of James 1. For anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. But he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Now, you have to understand, back in those days, they didn't have mirrors like we have today, made from sand. Okay? They had mirrors made from bronze. Bronze. Uh, if you had something bronze, like a bronze kettle, you try to look at yourself in the bronze, it's not a very clear image. And that's why uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, But now I see dimly, but then I shall see purely or clearly. So he's seeing dimly because he's looking in a, a bronze mirror here. He's comparing that to looking into a pure mirror. So a bronze mirror, uh, imagine someone looking into a mirror. Let's just use our, our normal everyday mirror we use. Every one of you probably looked in a mirror at least once so far today. At least the girls fixing your hair. Us boys, we just wake up with the hair like it is and we just keep going. But, uh, you know, imagine waking up from a long night of sleeping, you're tossing and turning all night, and you look in the mirror, and you, you look, and, and this this word right here that says uh, observe doesn't mean just glancing. The Greek word means careful consideration, understand completely. Okay? So you look in the mirror, you understand, well, my hair is really messed up. I got stuff in my teeth. They're all looking kind of yellow. Uh, you know, maybe when I get older, I got a little pimple on my head right there. You know, whatever it may be, and then you walk away and they'll do nothing about it. People are gonna laugh at you, first of all, okay? <laughs> You get your hair going all over the place. People are going to laugh at you. But they're going to know that you didn't do anything. You don't care about your appearance. Otherwise, you would have done something. Same thing with someone who hears the word and doesn't do it. They really don't care about their soul. They don't care about Christ's commands. They don't care about he's the king of kings and lord of lords and obeying him and following him. All they care about is keep on going. So he forgets what kind of man... He was, and what it really should, it really should be that he was that way. the problem is he's continuing in that way. So a man, here's the word of God realizes he's a sinner, deserving of hell and just forgets about it. There's no urgency. He could care less. and just goes about his life. It should have been the way he was, past tense, but it isn't. He continues in that way, anyway. And then in verse 25. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty. Now, what does the law of liberty does? First of all, it shows you you're a sinner, need need a savior. And second of all, it tells you to obey God. Those are the two reasons for the law. As a Christian, show you you're a sinner, need for the savior. Secondly, you obey it. And let's not call it here the perfect law of bondage. The law for a Christian, is it a hard thing to obey? Let's look at 1 John chapter 5 let's see what John the Apostle has to say about this and we'll start in verse 1 and read through verse 4 1 John 5 verse 1 whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of God. So you love God the Father love Jesus Christ by this we know that we, we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. It's a joy to keep the law of God if you're a Christian. A joy. It's not a burden. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. So it's not a burden, it's a law of liberty. People think sometimes, these non-Christians in the open air, oh, you guys are just, you guys live a sad life. No, you do. You're in bondage to your sin. You have your little pleasure right now with your drunkenness and your fornication and your filthy mouth, but I guess what, in the end, you're going to go to hell. That's not freedom. That's the worst thing that could ever happen to somebody. But they can, and they don't realize the pleasure of knowing Christ and the joy of knowing Him and having a relationship with Him and being intimate with Him. So the perfect law of liberty, and whoever looks at it and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer, this one will be blessed in what he does. John chapter 8, real quick, let's see what Jesus says about this liberty slave thing here. John 8, verse 34. Now, the Israelites don't understand what he's saying in verse 32, saying, The truth will make you free. They say, Well, we're not anyone's slaves. We're Abraham's descendants. And he says in verse 34, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Yeah, that's right. Oh, uh, free to sin? I thought you said free of sin. No, not free to sin. Uh, that's, that's an oxymoron. If you sin, you're a slave to sin. You can't be free. It's, it's slavery. That's all there is to it. And you're, either, and you're, you're so enslaved. You're Jesus' slave or you're, you're, or you're dead devil slave. That's the devil's slave. There's only two options you got. You're going to be a sinner and be a slave to the sin, a slave to the devil, and go to his place in the end and be with him forever. Are you going to be God's slave, righteousness' slave, and be with God forever? Those are two choices. Let's look at Psalm 1 real quick. to look at the life of the blessed man or the blessed woman, you guys probably have read this verse before. And it gives a contrast here between the blessed man and the, the righteous man and the ungodly man. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in what? The law of the Lord, the perfect law of liberty. And in his law he meditates, thinks about, contemplates, day and night. He should be like a tree planted by rivers of water, that, that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaves also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so. They are like the shaft with the, which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in a judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Perish. The blessed man and the ungodly man. The righteous man and the cursed man. If anyone among you thinks he is religious, down in verse 26 of James 1 once again, go back to that anyone among you thinks he is religious. Now, religious here doesn't mean what we use in our English term. That religious is kind of given a negative connotation in our day and age. Like we have religious and we have spiritual. Like religion is fake, it's just following a bunch of rules and when spiritual is actually knowing Jesus. So, but he's using religious here as piety, Knowing God and following Him. That's what it means here. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. What does the word bridle mean? Control. Control. Yeah. Who do you use a bridle for usually? Horse. Mm-hmm. And what does that bridle do? It's usually connected to the, the reins that you're pulling in. You can pull them, to the right. you pull them to the right, you can pull them to the left. It's controlling the horse. How big is that bridle? Right about that small, right? About the size that will fit in the mouth. How big is the horse? So how big is the horse compared to the bridle? Much bigger. How big? Stick your tongue out, everybody. Some of you have longer tongues than others. Stick your tongue out, Emily. She's got a really long tongue. My point is by making you stick your tongue out, everyone has different sized tongues. Some of you have longer tongues, like Emily. Some of you have shorter tongues. But how big is the tongue compared to the rest of your body? Small. Really small. It is a muscle. It's a very powerful muscle. Now, I don't I mean powerful. I don't mean you can do bench press at 500 pounds with it. That'd be really tough. Okay? But it is powerful in its effects it can have on people. Okay, so if you don't control your tongue, your religion is what? Useless. Useless. Keep that in mind here. Proverbs 18.21 says this. The tongue has the power of life and death. With your tongue, you can make fun of somebody. Uh you can talk disrespectfully to somebody. You can talk with unrighteous anger to somebody. You can say really mean things, culpable names. You can tell a sinner, Go to hell. Is that something that brings life or death? Is making fun of someone something that brings life or death? That's right or you can bring life you can preach the gospel with your tongue you can speak encouraging words you can be loving towards somebody you can rebuke somebody which is love if it's done in the right way but a tongue is a powerful weapon that's probably one of the most powerful weapons you have on your body never forget that never forget that pure well let me just just emphasize useless one more time. I got my notes here, I forgot about this. Turn to Acts fourteen fifteen. And you can see how strong this word useless is. Paul used it in Acts fourteen fifteen. He's talking to Gentiles here. And saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things, idols, to the living God. How useless are idols? Really useless. I think i to send you to hell. So that's how useless an untamed, an unbridled tongue is, and the person's religion who doesn't bridle their tongue is, it's that, as useless as an idolater's religion is. That's how useless it is. If you claim to be a follower of Christ and you don't bridle your tongue, your religion is that useless. It's as useless as someone who's following an idol. Because you don't understand the nature of God and the character of God who expects you to bridle your tongue. And then in verse 27, the last verse of this passage, pure and undefiled. Now, when someone uses the two words, different words, that basically mean the same thing, back to back, they're trying to emphasize something. It's like when Jesus says, lo and behold. Lo and behold mean the same thing. They're saying, you better listen. You better listen. Pure and undefiled, he's emphasizing here, religion before God and the Father is this. Three elements here. To visit orphans, to visit widows in their trouble, and people often forget this last part, unfortunately. They'll, they'll read the first part and they'll think there had to be some social gospel. Let's just go open an orphanage, that's all I'll do. I won't preach the gospel, I won't share the gospel. I'm just going to open an orphanage and help widows. I'm going to to the nursing home and I'm going to have an orphanage. That's all there is to pure and undefiled religion. No, no, the last part. Keep oneself unspotted from the world. Obeying God. Is the Great Commission part of obeying God? Sure is. But this issue of orphans and widows, why do you think God, why do you think that's part of pure and undefiled religion, orphans and widows? Can orphans help themselves? Can children help themselves? They're, They're at the mercy of the person who's taking care of them. A five-year-old can't go out and get a job and support himself impossible impossible widows turn to um first timothy chapter five and we're look at what kind of widows i think we're talking about here we're not talking about someone who's 30 years old let's say angela angela's gonna be 30 this year doesn't look 30 does she it looks like she's 25 or something like that but if i were to die today angela Technically speaking, would be a widow. And the question becomes at 30 years old, does Angela have the ability to provide for her family? Well, after she gets my insurance check, she'd be okay, she'd be everything paid off. And she would she has the strength, uh, the fortitude to do something to provide for her family. But these widows that we're talking about here in, in James talking about those who can't take care of themselves. Just like the orphans. They can't. They can't. They don't have any family. They can't take care, of, or maybe their family has not taken care of them like they should. Okay, First Timothy chapter five and verse three: Honor widows who are really widows. Two different kinds of widows there: widows and really widows. If anyone, any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home to repay their parents for this is good and Lord before God. So, who should really take care of? Like say. Me and Angela both have a a father and mother. Let's say Angela's father died, or Angela's mother died, and her her father couldn't take care of himself. Shouldn't we bring him into our household, or should we just put him in a nursing home? That's our job. We need to get in our head. The society we live in today, let's just put him in there. I don't don't want to deal with him. Put him in a nursing home. Give me the money you're going to give me as my inheritance, but just, you stay in a nursing home until you die. No, no. If your parent dies and the other parent can't take care of himself, you bring him into your household. Now, she who is really a widow and left alone, left alone, trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dealt dead while she lives. So it should be a certain kind of widow who's really alone, trusts in God, continues supplications and prayers night and day. And verse, down, verse 7 again, and these things command that they may be blameless. If anyone does not provide for his own, talking about those who have the widow as a mother or a grandmother, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do not let a widow under 60. So we have several qualifications now. She's really a widow. A widow is by herself. She's trusting God, continues in prayers night and day. Um, that she, uh, let's see, under, she's, under, she's over 60 years old. These are the qualifications in the church of God for being a really widow. And these are the ones, I believe, we're supposed to take care of. These are the really widows. That is pure undefiled. Now that's what we're talking about here. Pure undefiled religion before God is taking care of those who can't take care of themselves. They can't take care of themselves. And um, and this is the last point I'm going to make when I'm done here. People who can't, t- can't help themselves. We have widows. We have orphans. And uh, then we have sinners. Can sinners save themselves? No. Nope. Paying the blood of Jesus. These, this, is our, this is our ministry here. People who can't help themselves. They need help. Widows might need to be taken in, fed, given shelter. Orphans might need the same thing. Sinners need the gospel. This is our ministry. Oftentimes, I'll see the homeless ministries out there. People who have no home. You often see this, you drive around, you'll see someone on a corner of a major intersection holding a sign saying, "Uh, homeless, please give me money. In fact, I saw it at Columbia not too long ago, right in front of Walmart. Yeah, God bless you. They'll, they'll appeal to your conscience, because if you're a Christian, please give me money. But these homeless people are often people who look like they're in their 20s, fully fit, not disabled. Should we be helping them? I'll tell you what you are going to do if you're going to help someone who's homeless in their 20s, who's not disabled. You're going to enable them. And, and what enable means is you're going to... The word enable means that you're gonna keep them homeless because you're giving them money hey if they're gonna get money while they're homeless are they gonna try to make an effort to get a job clean themselves up no they're gonna stay right where they are so I submit to you the homeless people we should help are those who can't help themselves these homeless ministries that go around helping every single person who's on the streets that's ridiculous some of them just need the gospel some of them are just sinners. Some of them, maybe they, they, they greedily spend all their money away at a, a Las Vegas casino, And they love their greediness so much, they want to lose house, home, family, everything for their sin. Now, I'm not saying you don't help them get back on their feet. But you don't enable them by just giving them the money. You give them the gospel, first of all. And if they want to help themselves, then you help them. But they just want to give, give or take, 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 and you're they're leeching off of you. What does a leech do? Sticks on you, Sticks on you and just sucks the blood out of you. That's what some homeless people are like, and that, that's what some widows would be like. That's why Paul was giving qualifications. Let's just read on in that passage one more time here. It, it talks about those kind of widows who you shouldn't help. If you looked at the widows you should help, those are godly, praying, uh, don't have family who can help them. They're over sixty. And then it says, "But refuse." In verse 11, refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering from house to house. Now, idle about, about, but also gossips and gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that younger widows marry their children manage the house give no the opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully for some having already turned aside after Satan so the young widows according to Paul have a tendency to you know they're 20 years old 30 they have enough energy enough life left for them to go do something someone over 60 in Paul's time especially they can't go out and get a job they probably don't have the strength to do something like that I mean, if they had Walmart back then, it could have been a greeter or something like that. But, I mean, besides that, they, don't, they can't go out and get a job doing certain things that a younger woman could do. So, there's a principle as to helping certain people who are hopeless, widows, orphans, sinners. That's the ministry. It's undefiled before God. All right. Does anyone have any questions?
1: I understand a thought. Okay. James, you were speaking about. Okay, we're he <laughs> after Hebrews. Anyways, uh, I just thought, is that your discussion on lust and desire? Mm-hmm. As you went along there, then lust—that as it says in King James—lust, desire, conceived degree of fourth death. So that would have to be lust in that case,
0: wouldn't it? No, the, the lust here is desire. So you, in verse 14, each one is tempted, tempted, when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So in other words, you have these, these desires. His desires himself aren't sinful. Right. They're just temptation. Temptation can be fulfilled lawfully by doing a good thing, or be fulfilled, oh, let me use that example of food and drink and relationship. All three examples are desires we can have that can be fulfilled the right way or a sinful way. So, when it's desire, you're drawn away your desires and enticed. But when desire has conceived, you give into it. You give into this temptation in a wrong way. It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So, it's not just talking about you know, giving into this, this thirst for drink and getting some water, it's talking about going out and getting drunk. You're know, giving into that kind of temptation here. But lust itself, according to Matthew 20, 20, Matthew five twenty, lust itself is sin. But lust itself, according to the way the King James translates this word...
1: It's already
0: conceived if it's left. Well, if, if we're talking about the sinful lust, yes, it must already be conceived, and you must already have given into it. Yeah, so this is not, like I said, what we, I gave what, those two examples I had, where Jesus was strongly desiring to have, uh, to have the flesh supper with his disciples, same Greek word there, that can't mean sinful lust there, and then also when Paul uh, really desired to be with the, the brethren, I think that's what it was, desired to be with the brethren. So, but this strong desire here, which is translated as lust in King James, I think uh, the NASB translated as evil desire or something like that, or maybe that's NIV, and one of them translated as evil desire, but that's, they're going too far with it. Because it says right there, it's tempted, you're tempted, you're drawn away, you're enticed. But when it's conceived, means you've given into it. You've given into it. Remember the fish? He's drawn away, he's enticed. He gives into it. I get it, yeah. He snags it.
1: I understand. It just sounded like then when, this is the way it reads in the King James. then when lust has conceived, it bringeth forth sin. So right. the lust would have to be talking about a sinful
0: lust. No, no, it has to be conceived. Conceived means, like, for example, uh, in, in, in pregnancy. Well, if sem- the woman's in sem- I mean, if I have a desire, me and my wife have a desire for her to be pregnant, I have to give in to that. I have to give in to that, and we have to do something for her to become pregnant.
1: You know, I understand what you're saying, but it says, what it, what it came to me, I'm just saying what it came to me. Then when lust had conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Now, if you have a desire to have a baby, and your wife is agreeable, and everything is taken care of and all that, that's, that's not really lust, is it?
0: Now what, what, I'm, what I'm saying here, the word "lust" once again doesn't mean sinful lust in this context. It means desire. does not mean sinful lust. So if, if I have a desire, if I have a desire for something, I'm tempted by it. Whether it's tempted to have a baby with my wife or tempt, the fish tempted to go for the worm, they're tempted by it, and then when it, the word "conceived" there means they give into it. So you must give into it. But in, in the context of lust meaning sinful lust, you don't have. You can just you can be thinking about it, and it's sin.
1: But if you give,
0: give in, okay, I see. Yeah, so, so that's the difference there. there.
1: Uh, if you're looking at someone in a lustful way, uh, that's sin. You've already conceived.
0: You've already you sinned. You've already sinned. Right now, now even, even a woman to, to lust after her, her, you've committed adultery in your heart. Yeah, Matthew five twenty. But even with even with sinful sexual thoughts, lust uh... there's a temptation involved in that. You may see a woman walk by and you may be tempted, you may even look at her. But you haven't lusted after her yet. You're just looking at her. So there's a between looking and looking with sexual lust or sinful lust. So even the processes you go through there. So that, that is, you may look at it, maybe see a woman walking by and you have a desire for her, that's just temptation now. You're enticed by her, you're drawn away, you're enticed, but then you give in to that thought that sinful thought. Now it's become sinful lust. But the drawn away and the enticing is the desire, the non-sinful lust, which King James interp- translated as lust, but I think the translator's as lust is really a mis it, it causes confusion. It's a mistranslation because people automatically think lust, I think sin. Right, yeah. But as we see from other examples, of the way this word translated, it doesn't always mean sin. It means strong desire. Mm-hmm but I just
1: kind of make a sure. point about that. If if that word means lust the way it, it seems to mean in some translations, then it's sin already. That's right. It's sin before the conception. That's the point. And then you just do away with the whole doctrine of temptation altogether because you don't need to think about it. It's already sin, right. but that's not what the Bible teaches. So it, it's, it's really very important for all believers to understand there will be this process where the world, the devil, uh, brings temptation to your and do you dwell on it? Do you bring it forth into sin? So, mm-hmm.
0: Or, or do, you, do you resist it? Resist it. Flee from the devil, submit to the Holy Spirit, and, and be obedient.
1: And uh, I have another question sure. in my mind. Yep. I can't remember where the passage is, unfortunately. It talks about giving the gospel, but uh, how can they, with, with an empty belly, how can they hear the gospel without being fed? and
0: Oh, uh, it's probably Matthew 25. It's it just saying that you feed this one in my name, you're feeding me. Is that what we are talking about? Uh, it doesn't say anything about an empty belly, but uh, it does does talk about how and, uh 25 verse 40 it says, And the king will answer and say to them, surely I said to you, and as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Um, but that, that's That's referring to something else, I think. So... Yeah, I don't, I don't know what that, I've he never says heard.
1: brethren, uh, means someone that's saved, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think people miss that sometimes. Some people say that. I've, I've, I've heard a pastor. People say
1: that to me, too.
0: Yeah, I've, I've heard pastors say that, uh, well, if you're not feeding the homeless, then you're not feeding Jesus. Um, no? That's not what that means. No, that's not what I said. It says brethren. And if you're not taking, if, it about says, by this, people will know that you love me if you love the brethren. So if you have a brother in Christ, I mean, that's the first thing here is brothers in Christ. If you have a brother in Christ is in need, you're not, and you have an ability to help him, you're not willing to help him, there's something wrong. That person, yeah. And, and that, that's sin, and that's why Jesus says in Matthew 25 that those will go away to eternal fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you could have an enemy that says love your enemy.
1: Right. And an enemy is like your homeless person there
0: that's Lost 85 person. years yeah. old like me. <laughs> Anyways, you gotta feed them. You gotta help them. Right. Yeah. There, there are homeless people, uh, like I said, who you are able to help, and you should help. Those are the people who are hopeless. and can't help themselves.
1: Even an enemy. In that case, you're still sinning
0: against God. Oh yeah, them. yeah. I mean, the Matthew 25 isn't isn't saying you should just feed Christian homeless people or Christian. It's just it's just saying that in that te- text is just talking about those group of people. That doesn't mean you eliminate people who are sinners who are homeless people.
1: You take the whole-
0: that's that's right, the whole Bible. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, you should you should be able to to feed homeless people who are sinners who aren't Christians, but you shouldn't be enabling them. And that's what I see this this false sense of guilt that the church has sometimes. I have to go feed all the people who are on the streets. Um, no, you need to, you need to decide case by case. Well, if you can which help person. Them to get started. All right right. right, right. But that's not enabling them because they want they should want should to be get be started. Good. They want to get going. They want to be helped. But those people who just want to stay on the streets. You know, I don't know. They're They're sharp when I when I've dealt with them, I think most of them are in this category, the enabling category. Most of them are and, and they'll come up to you and they'll have the same story every time and they'll use your your beliefs in Christ, they'll say words like God bless you and they'll use these key words, maybe they sit down and studies together, I don't know, and they'll try to make you feel guilty if you don't help them. And I don't let it get to me. Uh, there so. was a fellow
1: at the library in Burtville yeah. who said, uh, I got to talking to him, he said, I don't believe in that Christian stuff. So I let it right because if you throw in curls, before it fine. I felt the my mm-hmm. But anyway, he says, and I got to talking to him again later on. I didn't bring it up at all. And he shared with me that he says, you know, I asked him about I was going to work. He says, that has no point in it. I go down uh, to California. In the wintertime, time, he says, "This last year, I got twelve thousand dollars from begging."
0: $12, yeah, $12, I often wonder. When I used to go. To, we used to go to this campus called Chapel Hill in North Carolina. Every time we got off the highway I-40, there's always homeless people right there, sitting there. And I often ask myself, "I wonder how much they make in a day?" And I myself, "I bet you they make more in a day or a week than I do." Sure. But they will sit there and do nothing. They'll the just base, beg. It's really a waste.